When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Make the same no-brainer decisions as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. If the roar of the crowd gives you goosebumps, cashing a slip makes you grin, and above all, you love making your bookie cry, then you're in the right place. The number one spot for premier betting advice and wild opinions, shared with a fan base like no other. Welcome home. This is the Punch List MMA Podcast. Here are your hosts, Dale Lippin and Trey Van Buskirk. What is going on, ladies and gentlemen? You are tuned into the newest edition of the Punchlist MMA podcast. I am co-host Dale Lippin, in here with Surf and Turf himself, Trey Van Buskirk. What's going on, brother? I have a PSA announcement to start this recording this evening. Okay. Do not, do not, when you wake up during your quarantine, do not wear sweatpants. Okay. Don't put those on right away. The moment you put on sweatpants, you have entered the fuck zone. Okay. And that means your day is fucked. Your workout is fucked. Everything is fucked. This True. is literally the best thing you can do is put on a pair of jeans, put on some slacks, put on workout gear, whatever it is, put it on because you will be so much more motivated. Wore sweatpants today. Nothing. Got nothing done. Nothing. Nothing. Well. Every time I've ever worked from the house, I've made it. I've made a point to get dressed as if I was not necessarily as if I was going to go, go to work, but definitely get out of out of my PJs, get out of yeah. uh, get out of my sleepwear, and get into like normal regular clothes. It helps trick the mind, trick the body, if you will, to get your food actually do- or get your work actually done. And you, so you hear me, I messed up there. I said food. It's because <laughs> I've got food on the brain. Um, you know, I came home from work today. It's my last day actually working. In the office, I went there today. They said everybody's working from home from here on out. Super pumped up. Uh, wife shot me a text and said, hey, we're doing steaks on the grill tonight. Mm-hmm. So there's nothing better than working, knowing that you've got steak waiting for you at home. Uh, but if you're already working from home, you can still have that same feeling. If you have steak classy meats delivered directly to the house, all you got to do is hop on, use promo code FIST, and save 10% um, off your entire order. What cracks me up, dude, is we, you know, the more and more people listen and take advantage of that, I love getting the messages from them going, oh, you know what? You were right. I'm so stupid. I, I shouldn't have waited so long. This is amazing. So happy I did this because it just slowly converts people, man. It's, it's a different way. It's a different way. It's the best meat on earth delivered right to your door. It's stupid. Well, and plus, you're being safe. You're not going to the grocery store. Comes in a box with ice. Just throw right. that, those things right back in the freezer. And I mean, meat's good for forever when you have it in the freezer. So, I mean, and not as good, but you're getting the most like farm to fresh Montana raised meat on the planet. So you're feeding yeah. your soul and, you know, you're keeping yourself clean and safe. Yeah. All right. So speaking of clean and safe, Dana White's promised the world and it looks as if he's delivered most of it. Um, <laughs> UFC 249 has been announced. We have a pretty much finalized uh bout order and fight card that's been assembled the only thing that nobody knows and he said that even the fighters won't know is the location but we do believe it is on the west coast somewhere your thoughts on that first off just give the man some credit you're you're kind of like if conor mcgregor were to go out there and sleep tony ferguson or justin gagey or even khabib i feel like it would take years and years for you to give him a compliment Let's give Dana White the compliment where it's due. You know, he's pulled together what is a stacked card. He's gotten fighters to a majority of fighters to take short notice fights for this upcoming card. And I mean, it puts us back in business. It helps put some cash in people's pockets, you know, during this trying time. I'm excited to get into this card. But what I am really excited to talk about is, yes, this location. There's been a lot of back and forth. You know, we've talked about Fighters Island. This is this notion that there's going to be this 
private island where fighters are going to be flown into. They're going to be taken to a specific location, then taken on you know secret flights just to a location that only the UFC is tight-lipped on. Now, there is a little bit of discrepancy. Are those first fights going to be all on the island, or are they going to solidify a location on the West Coast? It sounds like this first fight, UFC 249, is going to be on the West Coast. And I, Dale, have a hunch, my brother. Okay. All right. What, where's your hunch? Well, it brings me back to a glorious time when Uriah Faber was the WEC champion. Well, it was a long time ago. It was. It was actually November 5th, 2008, when he first got the WEC bantamweight title. And that bantamweight title that happened was between Cole Escovedo and Uriah slept him in the second round, stopped the fight. But that happened at a location in Lemoore, California, at the Toshi Palace Hotel and Casino. This place is the quintessential Indian, don't give a shit about commissions or anything place. And that is where this fight is going to happen. That's where you think? That's got to be it. Okay. All right. So how I'm interpreting Dana White's statements on this entire thing is that the the island will be reserved for international fighters um, and international fights. So what I, what I would anticipate seeing is the upcoming international fights like what we're seeing with like the Brazilian card and upcoming UK cards or the rescheduling of, of the, the UK card, all of those will take place on the island. So we'll see a lot of foreign fighters that don't live in the United States. They will be moved to fights that will take place on the island. But from what I'm reading from his statement, it sounds like over the next two months, all fights on U.S. Uh, with all fights that are featuring U.S.-based fighters they will be taking place on cards that will be held at this undisclosed location. So we'll be ha- we'll have two different spots where these will happen. So U.S.-based fighters will fight at uh, your casino in Lemoore, and <laughs> everybody else that is in you know that that's coming from an international standpoint will be fighting on the island. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. That's the, that's know, the way I'm interpreting what he's saying. So I could be wrong with that, but that's the way it sounds to me. Well, still, it's a total outside the box. Uh, plan and you can see this translating to I mean not obviously going to an island but we've seen this became become the pioneer the frontier for what pro sports are going to do going forward I mean we saw today MLB saying hey we need to get our season started right away they're talking about doing stuff in Arizona right away no fans UFC like they always have been since 1993 they're breaking the mold and while this is done on a completely obscure scale getting a you know an island for this to happen sure. it's definitely speaking to the masses which I think is really exciting. Yeah, I think it's I think I think we're utilizing and I say we as in the collective MMA community I think we're utilizing our last little bit of um, rogue behavior outside of the mainstream. Um, yeah. you know obviously especially you and I we've gone on at length, especially me, about how the UFC needs to treat their fighters more legitimately. There needs to be more sanctioning bodies. There needs to be uh, oversight through the promotions and things of that nature. So that way, there's there's so fighters are treated more like independent contractors and not like employees. Like the UFC treats them all like employees. It's hard yeah. to get this mainstream, main like frontline media coverage and respect whenever you treat your fighters like employees and not like actual individual athletes. Um, With that being said, that little tiny caveat is what allows something like this to happen. The UFC is a company. It's an entity. These people are employees. They can set up shop and run their company doing company business wherever they want outside of the reach of an athletic commission where somebody like the MLB, they're going to have a really hard time being able to get sanctioning bodies to approve them to play anywhere because those those company or those teams rather don't exist in the same way that a company like the UFC exists. The UFC is just operating business as a corporation. It's Zufa or that's not Zufa anymore. Endeavor, uh, IMG or whatever that's that's right. actually doing this. It's not. 
It's not the MLB. It's not the NBA. It's not the NFL. It's an independent company with with employees that's knocking this out, which I think is the last little, you know, thread that will eventually get pulled. But it's what's saving the day here. Yeah, and you know what else is kind of saving the day is outside of obviously Dana White is, you know. I think you've had a lot of hesitations and this is something I want to dive into a little bit, the structure of this card. Now we haven't gotten an official bout order, but if it is in the order that is being showcased right now, a lot of people look at this like, okay, this clearly outside of Dana White's ego to get a card going right away and get back into season. Is this a financially minded decision? Because if you look at this bout order, it's very heavy on the ESPN two side. And then when it gets into the pay-per-view, you know, you're going to end up kind of, folding and paying for that pay-per-view so structurally why do you like or dislike how the cards kind of set up well all right i'm going to address the big elephant in the room first and that's greg hardy um as it stands right now greg hardy's on the pay-per-view card which is ridiculous um (laughs) however i feel like we're beating the same dead horse beating the same drum over and over and over again with this greg hardy thing i think maybe a something that needs to be taken into consideration by myself, by you, by others that are sick and tired of hearing about Greg Hardy. He may actually have it structured in his contract that he competes Mm. at certain orders within the bout uh, or within the card. Like, you know, because, you know, the big, the big measuring contest between Colby and Tyron has always been, who's going to be the A side, who's going to be the B side. For sure. Greg Hardy may have had it written into his contract that he'll always be the A side and in no more than you know he'll never fight the pre he'll never fight in the prelims. He has to he has to be main card and he's got to be the A side. That could be that could legitimately be written into his contract. So in a situation like this where he does not it does not make any sense whatsoever with all the other quality fights on the card if they want him on the card it may make they may be contractually obligated to put him there. And you know that if there's anybody that loves a good contract that people can't get out of, it's Dana White. He loves locking people up in contracts. So maybe Greg Hardy's got himself a good lawyer, a good negotiator, manager, whatever, agent. And uh, that that may be why he is where he is, regardless of who else is fighting on the card. Yeah, I kind of think that he... I think I'm still a little bit deterred as to how high he is on that pay-per-view side of the card. Um, To me, he's a great uh, casual bridge. And what I mean by that is he's the guy that's more of a household name than a lot of these other fighters just coming from the football world. Placing him at the beginning of a prelim or, you know, to close a prelim is a good bridge into the pay-per-view card. So I think how high he is, though, makes makes it a little bit interesting. Right. Well, what's weird is, is they're 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 kind of cutting their nose off in spite of their face when it comes to Greg Hardy because they refuse to acknowledge that he is a a repeated domestic abuser, right? Like they (laughs) refuse to acknowledge that Greg Hardy beats women, right? They will not say on the air that Greg Hardy beats women, right? They won't say that Greg Hardy beats women. They won't say that. Did I say that Greg Hardy beats women? (laughs) They won't say that, right? No, Um, no. But... What they do in that is they also, they're not acknowledging his NFL background. They just say that he was an elite level athlete, athlete. Yeah. right? Yeah. Because they don't want to bridge that gap. Because if they go, oh, if, you know, your mid to mid casual to, to passive fan will go, Greg Hardy played in the NFL. And then they'll Google him and they'll find out that Greg Hardy beats women. So right. they just say that he's an elite level athlete. Well, outside of an elite level athlete, you don't really know anything about him, and he does not really appear to have many marketable skills. He's not light on his feet. His, you know, if you look at his last couple of fights, it doesn't even appear that he has that big one-shot knockout power no. that we've we see with other heavyweights. Um, you know, he does he have heavyweight power? Sure, of course he does, but he he's not marketable in the sense of what he's doing athletically within the cage or the way he's dispatching people or anything like that. So what it looks like is is a guy that you're super hyping up, feeding him tomato cans and putting him on a pay-per-view. And so the idea of him being a casual bridge, it's not even that because a casual bridge is somebody that you want casual fans to even get excited about because they're really exciting or they, they do crazy things or they're always in bloody fights or something like that. Those are the type of people that are great casual bridges. I think that the fact that they're not acknowledging anything about Greg Hardy whatsoever is actually 
killing the hype behind him because the more he fights, the more we talk about the fact that he shouldn't be fighting because he's not good, not because of what he's done. Mm -hmm. That's the problem. We're moving away. We're, it's shifting the narrative to another spot, which is he's not good enough to be on the pay-per-view. Criminal record be damned. He's not good enough to be on that pay-per-view. He should be in the prelims. Yeah. So. So what you're saying is he should essentially put out a tweet kind of like Henry Cejudo asking to be the intergender champion is really what you're saying. He's you're already saying. the inter, he's already the intergender <laughs> champion. Yes. He already is. I mean, the only thing about Cejudo is, is well, at least we don't know. It hasn't been con confirmed that Cejudo hits women. But Greg Hardy, just a simple Google search, will show you the amount of damage he can inflict on a female. It's absurd. It is absurd. So, uh, but so going back to your thing the only damage I really want to get into, Dale, is yeah. UFC 249. Yeah. I mean, that's the damage we need to inflict. That's the one that we want to inflict on this card. We want to put some serious cash in our pockets. Yeah. And you're telling me prior to this, I haven't had one second to look at this. You're saying the lines are wonky right now. Some of them are. Yeah. I'm not, a, I, I, it's one of those, like I was saying, um, this is one of those ones where I'm trying not to leverage all the money that I have in my bankroll and have it tied <laughs> up in fights because some of these, I'm looking at them and I can, and I will gladly, whether it be with you or the internet trolls or whoever, fans online, whatever the case may be, I will gladly debate the merits of either side of each one of these fights. It's unbelievable, um, you know, the way the lines look in comparison to how even these fights are, I believe, um, which is crazy because when you have very even fights with very off kilter lines, you can either absolutely murder them if you pick right, or you can get taken to the slaughterhouse if you, if you continually pick wrong. Uh, but there's quite a few in here that just have me sort of scratching my head. So I mean, let's let's dive into some of these, man. What fight do you want to what do you want to talk about? Oh man, I don't really want to go in a chronological order. I just want to kind of jump around because, like you said, these are all. I mean, every single fight on this card is super interesting from a completely different aspect. But why don't we start at um, why don't we start with Alex Hernandez, Omar Morales fight? Because sure. we talked about Alex Hernandez uh, for a while when he was going to fight Islam Makachev. And we were pretty high on Alex Hernandez. Um, I think that, you know, he's definitely had his mishaps. He's definitely, you know, spoken before he's shown his actions. Uh, a full camp under him going against, you know, Islam Makachev before the Omar Morales. Trained for, a, you know, a wrestling heavy match, you know, striking from distance. He's got a great camp under him. Where's that line sitting? What are your kind of thoughts there? So, I mean, the thing with that is, is you've got Morales, obviously a Bellator vet. Then he came over, fought on Dana White Contender Series, and then um, beat Dong Young Ma a while back and did so pretty handily. I think there was like right. even a 30-26 uh, scorecard that was handed in. You know, he's got all the skills necessary to beat a guy like Alexander Hernandez. And the thing with Alexander Hernandez that really throws me for a loop is on the surface level, he appears to be an elite level fighter, right? He definitely seems a guy that's poised for contendership at some point in time. Um, you know, obviously with a record like 11 and 2, it, it, you see that. Um, you know, he just brutalized Francisco Trinaldo. Uh, he got too big for his britches with Cowboy, but then easily beat. OAM and knocked out Benil Dariush. Those are super quality opponents, man. And I think they're better than anybody that Omar Morales has fought. The problem with Alexander Hernandez is, though, is we seem to get a different version of him every single time that he fights. So is he going to come into this fight hypervigilant, hyper-focused, ready to destroy Omar Morales as a last-second replacement? Um, is he going to run through Morales and then call out Makachev? Or is he going to come in and is he going to try to use this as an opportunity to sh maybe showcase some things that he's been working on in the gym that he wouldn't necessarily implement in the Makachev fight, deviate from game plan because he wants to get fancy or he wants to, he's taking Morales lightly and is he going to get caught? Um, and that's, that's the issue that I have with this fight is when you have these last second notice step-ins, how does that affect the A-side fighter? Does he feel disrespected? Or does he feel like he doesn't have to pay attention? Um, hopefully, he feels disrespected and he goes out there and tries to send Morales into retirement. That's what we would hope for. But he may come out and think that this guy's not on my level, and he may just try to take him easy. Um, if you ask me if Alexander Hernandez 
gets Dong Young Ma out of there if they fight. I think Alexander Hernandez finishes Dong Young Ma, and Omar Morales could not finish uh, Maestro. So I think Hernandez will win this fight. The line is sitting at Morales at a plus 195. Depending on how you feel about mm-hmm. this matchup in late second, last second replacements can sort of determine where you sit on that. None of these picks or none of the fights we're talking about today we're giving picks for. I'm not saying that 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 um that Alexander Hernandez at minus two twenty five is is a pick, but just merely breaking down the fight. Yeah, and to kind of just cap that fight off, I think like you said, a lot of fighters might deviate from their original plan. And I feel like when there's um when you do deviate from your original plan, a lot of that's always swayed by the crowd. Good thing is we know for a 100% the crowd's not going to be there. It's not going to be a factor. So if Alex Hernandez is really smart, I think what he's going to do is he's going to utilize his wrestling and do whatever he can for an Omar Morales to get gassed out in the first round and a half. And if he's yeah. able to do that with a short, you know, short notice fighter, which is extremely plausible, he's got a really good shot to win this fight. Yeah, I, one of the things that we are going to do is once the over-under on rounds get released for all of these fights, I think maybe we'll do a separate Instagram live or a post or something like that that covers every fight and where all the rounds are at because I'm loving yeah. the idea of playing a lot of overs on this fight or on this card rather because of the fact that there's not going to be a crowd there and because right. people's camps have been all wonky. I love the idea of playing a lot of overs, but it's also going to depend on where they're sitting at. Um, you know, there's a big difference. I mean, well, five minutes difference rather and a one and a half and two and a half. Um, so it's a big, big thing. Uh, so, you know, we've got to, we've got to figure that out once the time comes, but that's something to, you know, that we need to take into account a fight that I'm torn on, man, that I want to hear your take on, because I know you feel strongly about guys that miss weight. Ray Borg taking on Cheeto Vera. Cheeto Vera is the one guy in the Bantamweight division that nobody seems to want to fight. And Ray Borg stepping up. Uh, minus 150 for Ray Borg. Cheeto Vera sitting at plus 120. I think Cheeto Vera's got more skills to pay the bills when it comes to this fight. But Ray Borg, you know how I feel about my wrestlers, man. I know. Um, I know. He's a monster, dude. It's all, I mean, Demetrius Johnson fight aside, the dude is a beast. What are you thinking? Thank God this is not at flyweight because, again, we were talking about this. An easy prop bet would be Ray Borg missing weight. But the good thing, we're at bantamweight. And uh, Cheeto Vera, I really like his skills. I I love, though, a short-notice fight with a wrestler. I do. I think that if Ray Borg utilizes his wrestling, and this is exactly, I mean, I feel like a bit repetitive here with Alex Hernandez, Utilize your wrestling. Gas a guy out. This is a short-notice fight. This is your time to really not make it the most exciting, but elongate the thing, tire the guy's legs and arms out, and then just get points, close out a decision, you're good to go. Ray Borg just seems like a a pretty solid pick. I don't know. Do you have any other thoughts for Cheeto Vera? Well, I mean, you know, if you look at the momentum, I think think Cheeto's got all the momentum right now. Um, Mm -hmm. He's been the guy in the Bantamweight division that nobody's really wanted to fight. He's been getting kind of disrespected though with his opponent with opponents though. Um, you're looking at like a fight against you know his most recent fight against Andre Yule, but before that he fought Nohalene Hernandez, Frankie Science, Guido Canetti, uh, Waluigi Buren, uh, Douglas Silva D'Andrage beat him. But you know if you're looking at who this guy's beat, he's beat sort of uh, that that middle ground in the bantamweight division. He's looked he's looked really stellar against. Um, Silva D'Andrage, obviously, you know, that fight was, was a bad night for him, but that was almost two years ago. That was over two years ago. That was back when, like, uh, that was on the Machida Anders card. You know, that's how long ago that was. So you're looking at, you know, since Loyota Machida was in the UFC and fought Eric Anders and won probably one of the worst decisions ever handed out at a UFC event, Eric Anders easily won that fight. You know, Cheeto Vera hasn't lost since then. Um, and that's a long time, especially in a competitive division like Bantamweight. And then you got Ray Borg that's moving up to Bantamweight. I think Cheeto's got all the skills necessary to do this. But I just don't know if he's going to be able to negate the wrestling of Ray Borg. And at minus 150, man, I really like Ray Borg. Anytime you can get a guy like Ray Borg at minus 150 is a really great option, man. 
I, I love it. I love it. Um, and the good thing about Ray Borg too is this fight's two weeks out, so we don't have to worry about it being canceled. Right. The notorious canceled bouts with Ray Borg. You know, it looks yeah. like we're actually going to see him. He'll make weight. I think that's a good line. I like that. Yeah, I like that. I like that fight a lot. Um, that's a sleep. That's going to be a sleeper for fight of the night because I feel like that's going to that's going to have a furious pace to it because Borg will take Cheeto down, but Cheeto is super active on the ground. He's going to be trying to throw up submissions from his back. He's going to be trying to scramble and get up. He's going to try to let loose with the hands when he is standing. Um, that fight has potential to be a, a, a sleeper, bl- like bloody, high octane fight of the night. Totally, totally agree. <laughs> I mean, there's no doubt about that. Speaking of someone that's dealt with blood on their face and being slept a couple times, the veteran that is Michael Johnson going against Kama Worthy. I know um, we chatted about this a little bit beforehand. You know, with a record like Michael Johnson, it doesn't really reflect the type of fighter he is nor the caliber he's fought because he almost has what is a 500 record. Right. Um, you know, against Kama Worthy, who's an up-and-coming prospect. Um, sure. What are your thoughts on Michael Johnson? You know, obviously coming off a very lackluster performance in his last fight that went to decision, prior to that being slept by Josh Emmett. Kama Worthy coming up has got a little bit of momentum behind him. Both short-notice fights. What are your thoughts here? What worries me about this fight for Michael Johnson is, is he does not do very well with good movement. Um, and if you look at Kama Worthy, I'm not necessarily convinced that Kama Worthy has good movement, but he has sporadic movement. Um, he's like a he's like a weird little Keith Jardine. He's very herky jerky, jumpy in and out, up and down. He flits about in and out, you know, dicey maneuvers. Um, and what he's able to do is to get guys to jump in and engage in 50-50 exchanges, right? Um, If you look at the Michael Johnson-Josh Emmett fight, Michael Johnson was winning that fight right up until he got knocked out. But Josh Emmett knew that if he kept engaging Michael Johnson in these 50-50 exchanges where you never know who's going to come out on top of it, eventually he was going to catch him. So the whole time you're watching that fight, you know, the last two minutes you're going, stay away from him, stay away from him. And Michael Johnson just cannot help himself. He wants to go in there and he mm-hmm. wants to engage. Look at how he fought uh, Justin Gaethje. It was mm-hmm. 50-50 after 50-50 after 50-50. Kama right. Worthy is great at getting people to go into those 50-50 exchanges. That's what he wants to do. He wants to get you in there and he wants to see if you're willing to trade with him. Um, where Michael Johnson has been saved a lot of the times is that he's faster than most guys on the roster. And in a 50-50 exchange, he can get there before your average bear. My problem is, is that we've got a guy with, like you said, a nearly 500 record at 19 and 15 and a guy like Kama Worthy, who's coming off the biggest knockout or biggest win rather of his career in knocking out Devontae Smith on the Cormier versus Miocic card. That was a huge win for him. Right. Um, he, he's going to, he's going to come in looking to draw blood again. If you can get a guy, if you can come in and get a prospect win over Devonte Smith and then come in and get a win over a veteran of the game, like Michael Johnson, you got a top 15 opponent next. And that's yeah. huge for a guy like Kama worthy. The other thing about Kama Worthy is that I like about him is he's motivated because he's hungry, like physically hungry, because he doesn't make a lot of money, and he's got a bunch of kids. So you're <laughs> fighting to take food from away from that dude's kids. He said as much whenever he knocked out Devontae Smith. I need that fifty grand. I don't, I'm not going to be able to pay my rent. I gotta, yep. I gotta feed my babies. I, I think he's got like a handful of kids. I got kids. I think he's got a handful of kids. <laughs> so, um, you know, there's a lot to be said about comma worthy in this fight the flip side of that is though and i'll let you i'll let you get your edge in here is that michael johnson has fought way way better competition yeah i think um there's a couple things and uh, i i misspoke a little bit earlier but both of these fighters it is not it's not short notice both of these fighters were in camps comma worthy obviously was supposed to actually fight on 249 Michael Johnson was actually supposed to fight on April 25th in, I believe, Portland against Evan Dunham. So, you know, again, Michael Johnson has fought 
the who's who. You go down the resume. I mean, he's lost the who's who, though. It's Darren Elkins, Justin Gaethje, Khabib, Nate Diaz, Benil Darouche. He's fought Justin uh, or Dustin Poirier, Edson Barbosa. The resume speaks for itself. So when you look at the actual competition, the resume that's out there, I think that in the Stevie Ray fight when he lost, it was a bit of a humbling experience for him. It was a very lackluster fight that went the distance. If you looked at Michael Johnson when he was walking to the octagon, he was doing his singing, his dancing, he was feeling it, just kind of not really focused on the fight, just kind of trying to be more of a, you know, showman. A, a showman, exactly. What he did, he came in there, gave a lackluster performance. I think this is the fire that reignites him. I'm not saying he's going to have a very long career after this. I am saying, though, this is going to be a statement to kind of propel him to something that's maybe a little bit more bigger, a little bit more name against it than a comma-worthy prospect. So I like Mike, Michael Johnson in this fight for a collection of reasons, but I think omitting the crowd, which is going to be a massive, massive piece to every single one of these fights, is going to be a blessing in disguise for him. Yeah, and again, this is another fight that I'm super anxious to see what the over-under on rounds is. Um, it's one of those ones where if I'm seeing one and a half, I love the over. But if I'm seeing two and a half, I love the under because Kama <laughs> Worthy is going to get him in those exchanges, man. Uh, it's going to happen. I mean, again, not to beat that same drum, but if you look at the, the Poirier fight with Michael Johnson, what did Michael Johnson do? He kept engaging with fit in 50-50 exchanges with Dustin Poirier, and yep. Poirier got caught. And yep. that's... That lesson, right? You're talking about learning lessons. That was the lesson that Poirier needed to learn in order to shore up some of his boxing defense. So, yeah, I I, I love this fight. Um, I think it's gonna be. I think it's gonna be way more competitive than people are anticipating it being. You know, they see a name like Kama Worthy, and they're not sure what to expect uh, against a guy like Michael Johnson. I think that I'm I'm hoping that Michael Johnson feels disrespected and, like you said, wants to catapult. Exactly and yep. get that guy out of there and eliminate gatekeeper status from him. Exactly. So speaking of boxing and unique striking, or unorthodox striking, you say, to a certain degree, Uriah Hall, we've been high on him for a couple weeks now, like going against yeah. Jacare. So, uh, Jacare looks like he's had a great camp. He looks extremely fit. He looks calm, cool, collected. He's been invested in this since day one. This is a fight that's not shifted. It's supposed to be on 249 for some time here. Uriah Hall coming in. You know, this is what we always thought was going to be the rebirth of an Anderson Silva-type fighter. How does he right. do against a veteran in Jacare uh, Souza? My concern with Uriah Hall is, is that the brighter the lights are, the faster he burns. Um, outside of the gay guard Musasi win, it seems like every time he has the opportunity to really set himself apart, to really reach the highest level, to, to take that next step, he crumbles. Um you know, when he fought Paulo Costa, right? That he was supposed to be the measuring stick for Costa, and he got dominated by Costa. Yep. Um, you know, if if you look at the Gegard Musasi fight, um, again, you know, I, I just, dude, I, I, he he wins, right? He gets the win, and then they rematch, and what what happens? Gegard just throttles him, right, and just says, right. hey. Here's, you know, this was a fluke. Like the last thing, that spinning thing you hit me with was a fluke. Yeah. Yes. Like, right. Here's your chance to solidify this, and you, you, you blow it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and yeah. then, so it's like, you come off the biggest win of your career, right? In beating Gegard Musasi the first time, they give you Robert Whitaker, you lose, right? All right. So here's a very winnable fight against Derek Brunson to showcase that you're still the truth. You right. lose. Yeah. All right. We're gonna give you Gegard Musasi. We're going to give Gegard the the rematch back. You'll lose again. So mm -hmm. it's just one of those things where every time they try to let him put him in a position to rectify a wrong or to showcase his star power, he loses. And against a guy like Jacare Souza, you get no margin for error. No. Um, and this is going this is a pay-per-view bout. This is gonna be, you know, bright lights are shining on you. Um and you're fighting arguably the most decorated fighter yeah. um, of your career. Uh, maybe Gegard. Not Gegard. Uh, yeah, Gegard's the more decorated fighter, but the second most decorated fighter of your career. How are you going to fare? Right. And especially against someone who, like you said, Derek Brunson took your high haul down. Jacare Souza's got a win over uh, Derek Brunson. 
You look at he's got you know, two, doesn't he? Hasn't he beat Brunson twice? I feel like he's. I think I feel like every time they can't find somebody for Jacare to beat, <laughs> they, either give him, they either give him Derek Brunson or Chris Camozzi. <laughs> well, the thing is, he's you know he's coming off two losses: Jan Blockowitz and Jack Hermanson. His last win was over Chris Weidman. Um, you know he's only he's gone two and three, or um, yeah, two and three in his last five fights. You know. This is another person that can't really find his division, can't really find his weight, can't find where he wants to be. This is a, you know, a re-step into the light for him, a rebirth, so to speak. But is it too little too late? I love Uriah Hall in this for so many different reasons. I love his unorthodox striking. I love his cardio. I love, you know, kind of how he fares against someone when you looked in the Jan Blokovic fight, which was the most exciting fight for Jacare Souza. I mean, it was fireworks. Yeah. No, it was I'm a great joking. fight. It was a piece of shit I, fight. Yeah, it was awful. It was, it was 100% <laughs> a sleeper. Um, that was the worst fight you'd ever seen. Someone that wants to show a rebirth of who they are, um, you know, take down someone who now is a is a title contender, and you put a lackluster performance of that, one where you're on the edge of your seat, and you're like, okay, this is this is exactly like what we thought was going to happen with Izzy and Yoel Romero. It was the same type of fight. When is someone going to engage? When is someone going to engage? Well, the one thing you can count about this fight, Uriah Hall is going to engage. Jan Blokovic, who's known to be a counterpuncher, you know, he never engaged to let the counterpunching happen. Right. This is a fight where Uriah Hall is going to move forward, and I think we're going to see a real Jacare Souza, but I think we're going to see you know, a, a much better Uriah Hall. Yeah, I certainly hope so. I mean, one of the things that Uriah Hall showcased in his last fight was an improved jab. Um, and if you look at what Chris Weidman had a lot of success with against uh, Jacare up until he got caught there in the, in the third round was the jab. He was sticking right. and moving, staying to his game plan, engaging and getting out and pestering and busting up Jacare's face and nose with that jab. Um, Uriah Hall has shown in the past that if he can, he's a Donald Cerrone type guy. He's got to get into his groove early and he's got to stay there as long as everything continues to go his way then he'll stay in the fight. But the yep. moment things start going the wrong way, the moment things start feeling south, he checks out and he's looking for a way out. Um, Jacare, just just spitting off the top of my head, has two wins over Derek Brunson and two wins over over uh, over Chris Camozzi. So, <laughs> yeah, so they just, just let Jacare just beat up on these guys. Yeah, um, fed to the Gator, dude. Right. Yeah. It's going to be an interesting <laughs> fight for sure. Uh, you know, is Uriah Hall hungry? Is Uriah Hall angry? My, my thing with him has always been lack of killer instinct, right? Jacare is able to turn it on and go beast mode. He's, he's, he's able to bite down on the mouthpiece and swing. Um, yep. You saw that in the Weidman fight. He knew he was losing. He was busted. He was bloody. He was broken. He was beaten. And he just kept walking forward and eventually clipped Chris and set, set him down. Um, but if you're looking at how he fought against Jack Hermanson, Hermanson just rode him like a cheap little, easy, you know, like one of the little coin-operated ponies on the outside of a grocery store, man. He was all yeah. over him. And then the the Blockowitz fight, I think he was just too timid, too scared, didn't want to engage. Um, you know, just one of those fights, I think, where that was his game plan, and they thought that they were doing enough to win, so they didn't feel the need to, to, to do anything different. Um, right. That's one of those fights where I remember thinking that open scoring would have been great here because I believe that both parties felt that they were doing exactly what they needed to do to win and right. thought that they were winning handedly and yep. only for it to come out as a split decision. So I think that game plan that Jacare enacted for that fight was more to blame than the actual um, you know, more bad judging per se or anything that Blahovitz did. It's what Jacare didn't do um, is what cost him that fight. But where where's that line sitting right now? I'm really curious because you know when we looked at it a week ago, uh, Uriah was a significant significant underdog. Yeah, it's gotten a lot tighter. Uriah's at a plus one twenty. Jacare's at a minus one fifty. So that's really tightening up. Yeah. So uh, I wouldn't be surprised if that's closer to a pick 'em come fight time. We got two weeks. I would be I would not be shocked uh, to see that at a, at a pick 'em come fight night. Gotcha. So. I feel like you're just feeding amazing, amazing segues and transitions. But you did say guys that will bite on the mouthpiece and move forward. Jeremy Stevens and, and uh, Calvin Cater. That yeah. is a fight that, without a doubt, those guys both bite down on the mouthpiece and move forward. What are your thoughts there? 
Obviously, Jeremy Stevens is, I think, in my opinion, Jeremy Stevens has more power and more weapons. Um, Cater loves his boxing, man. He's so in love with his hands. He loves the way he looks um, when he's fighting. And that's my only concern with Calvin Cater is sometimes he gets caught looking in the mirror. Um, mm-hmm. And what I mean by that are guys that don't know what I'm talking about like that. He's watching his work. He's always watching his work. He's throwing combos and watching what happens. He's not necessarily paying attention for what's coming right back. Doesn't do it often, but you can catch him walking his work. You can't or watching his work. You can catch him looking in the mirror from time to time. And a guy like Jeremy Stevens hits too hard for you to make those mistakes. Um, a guy like Calvin Cater needs to get in the pocket and get Jeremy Stevens to engage because Jeremy Stevens does not throw things from a fundamental standpoint. He throws big, wide, looping, energy-consuming shots, and you can wear a guy like Jeremy Stevens out. Um, I will say this, though. I'm worried about Calvin Cater in this fight because he's so orthodox, because he's so by the book that sometimes you see guys that have never – been in a dogfight or guys that have never faced anybody super unorthodox, they don't know how to deal with unorthodox things that come down the pipe at them. And Jeremy Stevens, in my opinion, would do well here to utilize his leg kicks. He has underrated leg kicks. Calvin Cater's heavy on his front leg. Utilize those leg kicks, and then as he's got Calvin thinking about the leg kicks, come up over the top, come up from the side, uh, even implement some uppercuts or, you know, stepping off center line, left hook, right hook combinations, and trying to get a guy like Calvin Cater to get sloppy so that way he can get caught. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's exactly, uh, you said it perfectly. This is a tale of two tight tapes, and the reason that Jeremy Stevens is 100% the drunk guy at the bar that's 500-0 at O'Reilly's Pub versus Calvin Cater, who's bill roberts md he's a he's 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 literally just the most perfect doctor out there that's what he is he's a he's surgical he's by the book if he can engage utilize his boxing kind of point grab a little bit but like stay in that pocket and keep utilizing his jabs uppercuts all that stuff he'll be he'll be set the last thing he needs is to get rung a little bit and then engage just based off pure instinct. That's where it's going to get sloppy, and that's where Jeremy Stevens thrives. If we saw Jeremy Stevens in the Yarier Rodriguez fight, is a quintessential Jeremy Stevens fight. Later in the round, when he was just getting mauled, something clicked, made it messy, and that's where he was able to kind of t- turn the tables a little bit. He yeah. needs to play his own game. He needs to stay by his own book. Calvin Cater's got to get in there, get out, get the win, and remove himself. Again, crowd factor, not in there. Jeremy Stevens, I hate going against the San Diego boy. I love it. I, I love everything about Jeremy Stevens. I love the way he fights, but we haven't seen the same type of punching power behind Jeremy Stevens that we've seen in the past. That's It's been on the decline to a certain degree. Is this going to be a little bit of a resurgence for him? I don't know against a guy who's such a tactician, tactician and so surgical. Yeah, you know, my, my thing with Jeremy Stevens is he's always been susceptible to, to the body, right? He's always suffered with the body. Um, Yair Rodriguez implemented a great game plan um, in attacking him to the body. Zabit attacked him to the body. Obviously, Jose Aldo destroyed him to the body. Um, that's that's a big thing that he's that he struggled with. But if you look at guys that are very fundamentally sound, um, you look no further than Josh Emmett and Duho Choi. Both of those guys... For at least from a stance standpoint, Josh Emmett's very disciplined. He's very by the book. He's very he's very tight. You know, chin down, gloves up. Very good. And Jeremy Stevens, in my opinion, that fight with Josh Emmett, that was one of the dirtier, scary knockouts we've seen in a long time. That elbow that he mm-hmm. hit Josh Emmett with when Josh uh, Emmett was cl- very, very clearly unconscious. <laughs> very clearly, everybody yeah. knew that he was unconscious. Um, if you look at the elbow that he hit him with, that was absolutely filthy. Um, you know, and Josh Emmett is a textbook by the book, um, you know, carbon copy of what you want to see when it comes to a guy, as far as his boxing stance goes, you see a lot of that with Calvin Cater, you know, Jeremy Stevens has had success against fighters like that. I'm just... My concern is is that Cater is better, faster, stronger, longer, um, yep. presents more of a problem like a Zabit yep. does, and Stevens has to worry about what's coming at his body. I would not be surprised to see Cater 
trying to freeze frame Stevens with with we you know with straight combos down the middle and then digging the body uh, with shots. I, w- I would not be surprised whatsoever. The last piece I want to put on this, uh, Jeremy Stevens has been training a lot with an absolute scrub, and I hate to say that again, love San Diego boys, but training with Dominic Cruz. He's been training with Dominic for years. He's nah. been trying. He's been training with he's been training with Cruz nah. for years. Uriah Faber, 2020. Speaking of someone that hits just as hard as Uriah Faber, Francis Ngano and Rosenstrike. <laughs> That's a terrible transition. A great oh transition. Oh my gosh. Technically listen, the same person. No, listen, I, I want to get into the Francis uh, uh, Rosenstruck fight, but here's I, I want to keep it brief because I want to dive into it for the actual pre-event show. Um yeah. I love the idea, depending on where the over-under on rounds comes in here, I love the idea of playing it over, um, depending on where that lands. Uh, this is going to be a good fight. I wish that these guys had more bad blood. I wish that there was a uh, a little a little bit less respect between the two of them. Um, but I think what we'll see here, I think we'll see a guy like Rosenstruck who doesn't really doesn't really seem to buy into the hype of himself, doesn't seem to buy into the hype of other people. And just goes in there with a workmanlike attitude to get things done. I think Francis, if you look at him, he likes the idea of himself. He likes the idea of the celebrity status that he's garnered. He likes the idea of being the center of attention. That doesn't appear to be Rosenstruck's MO. Um, So, again, I wonder how that plays into the fight. If Rosenstruck goes in there with a workmanlike attitude, I I think he can get Francis out of there, to be honest with you. (laughs) <laughs> I'll keep it brief too. Francis Nagano murdered Alistair Overeem. Alistair Overeem was beating the shit out of Rosenstrike until the last second where he obliterated the lip. You know. Yeah. That was a bad stoppage, too, by the way. Bad stoppage. That was a yeah. bad stoppage. Murgliata should not have stopped that fight. No. Overeem stood back up. You don't, you know, uh Rosenstruck should not have walked away. I agree with you. Overeem did everything he needed to do to win that fight. He fought a a tactician's wet dream when it comes to how you beat a guy like Rosenstruck. But let me ask you this. Does Francis Ngannou have the same discipline and the same skill set to enact that game plan against a guy like Rosenstruck? He does not. So it's not going to be that fight. To me, that cancels it out. Yeah. Okay, that's a good point. Good point. Um. Keep moving on here, keeping of uh, heavy-handed guys. I know we did speak really quickly about Greg Hardy. I don't want to give him more notoriety than he deserves, but Greg yeah. Hardy versus Jorgen DeCastro. A lot of people are saying Jorgen DeCastro is the guy that's not the quote-unquote soup can that he's been fed in the in the past. Jorgen DeCastro is coming in much smaller, uh, but you know it's it's Hardy, short notice, quick thoughts. I still don't like DeCastro as the guy to to to, to take Hardy out. I really don't. Um, you know, again, Hardy's really good at getting guys into these exchanges um, where, you know, it's a 50-50 toss-up as to who's going to come out. Yeah, DeCastro has a, win, like, has a beautiful knockout win over Justin Taffa, but I think Greg Hardy would beat Justin Taffa too. So I really don't, I really don't see anything with that, you know. Um, the only X factor that I can sort of see weighing into this, and I hope that it does because I'd love to see it, is if you look at what DeCastro did on the Contender Series. When he fought Alton Meeks, he was destroying Alton Meeks' legs with leg kicks. Um, mm-hmm. He was able to implement leg kicks, which is not something that a lot of heavyweights are willing to commit to do. And no. Greg Hardy has the world's worst footwork. He's so heavy <laughs> on that front leg. I would love to see DeCastro come in, utilize his small size, dart in, leg kick, frame out, back up, and come back in again. And don't let Greg Hardy get set. Do not engage him in those middle exchanges. Beat that leg up. Hobble him. Then take him down. Win this thing on points. Do not do anything fancy. Greg Hardy is not going to submit you. His takedown defense and takedown game is awful. Your average rudimentary wrestler will be able to take him down, and Jorgen DeCastro is exactly that, if nothing else. He can win this fight by doing very basic fundamentals moderately well. Yeah, and I think most of us are excited to see maybe it's going to be a Greg Hardy fight that's not going to end controversially. Maybe this will be the first fight. Yeah. You think there'll be an inhaler or a knee or a, you know, a soccer kick? Maybe a soccer kick will come in in this one. This will be a good one. 
What did we already had a soccer kick situation? Did we not? Who did he uh, have an illegal kick? What was the? Yeah, he did. His hand was. Uh, yeah, the hand was on the mat still. Yeah. Yeah. On the canvas. Yeah. What was that kid's name? I can't remember what his name was. Uh, I want to say Adam Milstead, but I know that's not right. Oh man, white dude. What was the guy's name? Uh, dude, soup can. I have no freaking idea, man. Those any any Greg Hardy fight is just either ends in controversy. You don't remember who the guy fought. Alan Crowder. The legal <laughs> yeah. yeah. He tried to kick him and then he need him. Yeah. Alan mm-hmm. Crowder. Um, so yeah, I mean, look, you, you just, it's one of those things, man, where I worry about a guy, you know, like upper level competition. Again, it goes back to this idea of like, you know, I'm sure you see this all the time, right? So you go to the gym, you see higher level belts every once in a while. They'll roll, they'll roll with lower level belts because they want to see what these guys that don't necessarily know what they're doing, oh, what yeah. kind of positions they can put them in. So that way they can see how to work themselves out of these problems. And every once in a while, you might find yourself in a problem you can't get out of. A guy like Greg Hardy presents very fundamental issues for people. However, he does them in an unorthodox manner. So I don't know if Jorgen DeCastro is the guy to get him out of there, but I also worry, and it was my worry whenever he fought Alexander Volkov, is that he has the skill set, potentially, to pose a problem for a guy that wants, that doesn't take him seriously. Now, in that sense, Alexander Volkov took him very seriously and annihilated him, 30-27 on all cards. But, you know, does Jorgen DeCastro drink his own Kool-Aid? Does he feel like he's that, that Greg Hardy is not worthy? You know what I mean? I, that's what happened with Juan Adams. Juan Adams thought he was going to run through Greg Hardy. Now, guess what? Juan Adams is unemployed. <laughs> Greg Hardy's still in the UFC. Yeah. That's so. the problem with uh, with heavyweight fights. And you brought up a good analogy there. It's just like jiu-jitsu. I would rather all day long fight black belts and brown belts than I would white belts. And the reason is white belts are spazzy. They're, they create a lot of issues yeah. in the regards of not just, no, I'm not going to get submitted by a white belt, but am I going to get a black eye or a random elbow or knee to the eye? Probably. Sure. These guys are yeah. absolutely wild. And when you get heavyweights that are brand new to the sport that don't have much of a foundation, that's where those clips come in and that's where an issue presents itself. Speaking of issues that presented itself, Jessica Andrade presented a massive issue to Rose Namajunas in their last fight by dropping her on her head, which changed the complete course of the fight. One fight that many believe Rose was actually winning. We've got round two here, which is going to projectile either one of these to either fight what we pretty much just saw as one of the greatest women's fights of all times in Wele Zhang and Joanna Jinchechek. This could be the next fight to deter which one's going to go fight either Joanna or which one's going to go fight Wele. What are your thoughts on Jessica Andrade and Rose Namajunas going at it for a second time? Oh, man. I hate this fight, uh, to be honest with you. I hate it because Andrade is going to be hungry, and we don't know what Rose looks like because we haven't seen Rose since the last time she fought Jessica. Um, so we don't know what to expect. And I, I know one of these things, you know, one of the hardest things in athletics or just life is whenever you face a debilitating loss, getting back on the horse and getting and going at it again. Um, you know, uh, having suffered multiple ACL tears in my life, one of the scariest propositions for me is jumping. I am, I am legitimately small panic attack every time I have to do any sort of <laughs> dynamic movement, cutting, jumping, you know, running backwards, anything like that, because I, I, my brain goes into safety mechanism that says, Hey man, remember when you got hurt doing this? Remember when you got hurt the time before that, and the time before that, and the time before that? Stop doing these things, and it yeah. makes you know it makes you more cautious. Um, Rose, in and of herself, has had has admitted at times that she's not necessarily in love with fighting. She's not right. in love with the violence. Um, she doesn't go to the dark place, if you will. Um, she doesn't like being there. She wants to be happy. And, you know, remember at her, her famous post-fight speech where can we all be nicer to each other? Can we all be more respectful and love one another? and Hug it out. You know, she wants to hang out with Pat and play with her dogs and grow microgreens and do all that kind of stuff. That's what she is. Dude, that's what she wants to do. Ah. She's. Here's here's a throwback. She's the happiest the, I've ever been. Your little right. statement right there just brought right. so much joy to my life. Right. She's the Luke Kumo of female <laughs> fighters, dude. She's eccentric. She's happy all the time. You don't really, you know, it doesn't seem to have the violence within her. But when she does, she's lethal. Um, 
can she get out of her own head when she when it comes to fighting Jessica Andrade this time? Jessica Andrade desperately wants to fight Weilei Zhang again. She feels like she was overzealous in taking a fight in China on short notice after just winning the belt against an opponent that she didn't respect and she got caught. She desperately wants that fight back. She is going to come hungry, ready to tear Rose apart. Is Rose going to be ready for that? That remains to be seen. This is a fight that I'm very, very nervous about. I think Vegas, though, is probably under the same somewhat type ideology that we are, putting Rose as a favorite. Am I right? Yeah, Rose is a favorite right now. She's at a minus 210. Uh, Jessica Andrade sitting at a plus 170. And I think that's a little bit more nostalgia bias than anything else because Rose was so dominant in the way that she beat JJ. Um and the way Andrade got beat by Wele, I think that there's a little bit of recency slash a little bit of nostalgia built into that line. I think it's a lot closer than that. Um, I really do. Uh, obviously, Rose was winning the fight up until she got dropped on her head. But keep in mind, that happened, I think, in the third round. That was a five-round fight. Yeah. Was Rose going to continue that for another two and a half rounds? Was that even something that was possible? Because Andrade, as you know, walks forward, never stops. Um, and constantly tries to inflict damage. How would that have fared? How how would have Rose won rounds four and five? Would she have been able to keep up that same pace? Would she still have attacked submissions at every turn? Would she still been able to use her footwork and slip and use that jab and bust up on Josh's face? We don't know because she got taken out by getting dropped on her head. So yeah. it might, you know, realistically, if we go in a time machine and remove the remove the head spike. Rose still might have lost that fight. That might have still been a bad matchup for her because we don't know. It was such a fluke move that put her out. Yeah. So there's a lot of variables here. And I again, this fight makes me super nervous, man. Well, the good thing is Rose is taking some time off. She's reset her priorities, and it seems like she's invested. She's been invested in this camp. Speaking of someone that's been extremely invested, and it brings us to our main event. I know there's a couple of fights that we've skipped over. Um, but, you know, we'll either circle back or again, guys, this is one that we, this is not our picks. Next week we're saving it. We want to see what happens going closer to the fights. But let's talk about the main event. This is an opportunity, a massive opportunity for Tony in the first time I think I believe in history to be the double interim champ champ. Am I right? Yeah. Interim champ champ. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm going to give you a 10,000 foot view of this fight because I want to do a more detailed breakdown for the actual episode uh, with our pick on it. But this is, in my opinion, this is a nightmare matchup for Tony. Um, you have a guy that is, is not, ne- isn't scared of Tony, but is scared of the moment. Um, and he's scared in all the right ways. He's scared like he's nervous, like he's going to ride a roller coaster. Um, Justin Gaethje came out today and said, I've got 19 minutes of fury in me. Um, and I'm either going to knock Tony Ferguson out or he's going to submit me later in the fight. So that's the type of guy when you have somebody like that with Tony Ferguson, that's what always concerns me. And we've talked about this with previous Tony Ferguson fights is that a guy that's willing to engage Tony Ferguson, who doesn't buy into the El Kakui, the boogeyman hype. How will Tony respond to that? Because what's happened in the past is Tony has physically and mentally broken his opponents by continuing to be there. Justin Gagey says, I fully expect to knock him out or get my ass kicked. That's it. So he knows, right? Like, you know, you're getting ready to go on a roller coaster. I'm either going to love this or I'm going to puke, right? I'm going to jump off this cliff into the ocean. I'm either going to hit the water and it's fine, or there's a big rock underneath the water I can't see and I'm going to hit it and die. You know the risk, or you assume there's an implied risk whenever you take the plunge in more ways than one. And Justin Gaethje has taken this fight knowing, I'm not going to fight for 25 minutes. I'm going to fight for 20. Can I get him out of there in 20 minutes? If I can, it's going to be by knockout. If I can't, He's going to he's gonna submit me. And he even said, I'm not going to tap, so he's going to put me to sleep. How do you, you scare put, a guy like that? You need to put your fears of the ocean away there, Dale. Um, let me uh, circle back for a second. There's in, sharks and all kinds of stuff that can eat you. I'm not going in the ocean. The biggest fear right now going to the ocean is getting a $1,000 fine for not being in quarantine. That's probably the scariest thing. Right. But speaking 
of Justin Gaethje. I think the best fight, actually, I'm going to bring this back. The best fight for people to watch, you know, before our episode uh, next week, which we will give our definitive picks, watch the Tony Ferguson with Anthony Pettis fight. I find that fight to be really telling. And the reason is, no, Anthony Pettis is not the wrestler that Justin Gaethje is, but Anthony Pettis clips Tony Ferguson in the second round. And if you don't think that Justin Gaethje has much more power in his fist when he clips Tony Ferguson, that it's not going to rock Tony Ferguson, you're out of your mind. Tony Ferguson was not only rocked in that second round, but it allowed Anthony Pettis to get on top and hold top position and try and implement some ground and pound. Justin Gaethje, that's his bread and butter. So this is an extremely scary fight. Now, Justin said he's 90% coming into this fight. Total bullshit. There's no way on two weeks notice that you're 90%. I know he's you know, training, he's been sparring, but you're not at 90% unless you've at least had three plus weeks of camp. So he's coming in. This is an opportunity for Tony Ferguson to, again, hopefully be smart, hopefully get out of his uh, original ways and just kind of go with his unorthodox feel, wear Justin Gaethje down, weather the first two rounds, and then just capitalize and dominate just exactly like he did against Anthony Pettis. Weathered the storm for two rounds. Anthony Pettis came out. Granted, they called Anthony Pettis's fight, you know, said you can't go any further. This is an opportunity for Tony Ferguson to fight smart. It's an opportunity for him to capitalize on Justin Gaethje and get that double-double interim champ belt that everyone ever so wants. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to say this again. Gaethje has super underrated leg kicks. Um, people that don't know this, you need to watch Gaethje in his World Series of Fighting's Day, Fighting Days. His leg kicks are super underrated for those that people because he hasn't utilized them that much in the UFC outside of maybe the Poirier fight, um, where he essentially crippled Poirier and broke his hip <clears throat> by kicking him in the leg so many times. But if you look at the Barboza Ferguson fight, Barboza was able to implement success, rock Tony, and hurt him with leg kicks. Lando Venata almost finished Tony Ferguson. People forget that. Short notice, Lando Venata almost beat Tony Ferguson. Rafael Dos Anjos, Tony Ferguson, in my opinion, beat pretty handedly despite 48-47s on the cards. But Kevin Lee, before Kevin Lee, Kevin Lee, and gassed out, was dominating Tony Ferguson with his wrestling and his strength. Anthony Pettis, like you said, rocked him, had him all yeah. types of trouble. Even Cowboy Cerrone, towards the end of round two, had Tony in trouble, was implementing some success. People have this mythological field over their eyes when it comes. They think that Kakui or Ferguson is running through people. He's not. Yeah. Yes, he's implementing damage. You're not going to come out of a fight with him unscathed, but he doesn't come out unscathed either. He's not standing there the picture of perfection like he just walked yeah. out of a modeling magazine. He gets yeah. busted up too. He gets hurt. He gets rocked. And Justin Gaethje, you don't get a second chance. You don't get that. You don't get a rebound. If you look at God, look, I'm just going to run through the 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 Tony Ferguson win streak real quick. Okay, oh, Mike Reed. No, listen, Mike Rio, Katsunori Kakuno, Danny Castillo, Abel Trujillo, Gleason Tebow, Josh Thompson, Edson Barboza, Lando Venata, RDA, Kevin Lee, Anthony Pettis, and Donald Cerrone. Not one of those guys, Trey, has one punch put you to sleep power. Not yeah. one. Abel Trujillo hits pretty hard. Abel Trujillo's got a couple knockouts on his record that are that are scary, that are dangerous, that are dynamite knockouts. Everybody that Kev, or everybody that Tony Ferguson has fought and beat, they're cumulative knockout guys. Now, Cowboy can one-shot knock you out with a kick. So can Kevin Lee. So can Edson Barboza. But I'm talking about dynamite in the hands like you see with a guy like Justin Gaethje. If Justin Gaethje hits, Anthony, or hits Tony Ferguson the way Anthony Pettis did, Tony Ferguson's asleep. I love how you said utilizes striking and has dynamite in his hands because I swear to God, if I hear someone say, Oh, we have an elite wrestler. That is the dumbest argument for this entire fight. Tony has been training against what is the world's greatest wrestler in mixed martial arts that we know as of this moment in Khabib Nurmagomedov. Justin Gaethje. I mean, Tony Ferguson, like you said, handily beat Kevin Lee, who's just on the same level from an NCAA perspective as Justin Gaethje. Do not utilize the wrestling as a pedigree for this fight. It's completely negated. Tony Ferguson has trouble against guys that can clip him. We've seen that. Justin Gaethje is a guy, like you said, has a ton of power in his hands, and it's extremely scary. Yeah. Anytime you see two wrestlers fight anyway, it, all be it always becomes a striking match. Wrestlers, <laughs> right. ne wrestlers never want to wrestle each other. 
But I'm glad yeah. you said the word clip because there is one more clip that I want to talk about before we wrap <laughs> this thing up because we're running over. And that's the clip that you don't have to worry about if you're shaving your balls if you're using Manscaped. Uh, go to manscaped.com, use promo code PUNCH, get 20% off your entire order and get free shipping. It's amazing, man. Um, it's getting hot here in South Carolina. The temperature <laughs> is heating up, and I'm telling you, I've never felt better. No, it makes sense. And if you want to get to this fight island as quickly as possible, make yourself a dolphin, shave it down, make it round, cut right through the current, get to the island. And not only that, but you'll be just completely hairless and totally tan. Yeah, no, resist, no resistance on your rudder, right? That's, <laughs> that's what you want. All right, dude, let's wrap this thing up. I think it's the longest one we've done in a while, man. It is. It was a good foundation. Like you said, 10,000-foot view against all the fights. We will next week dive into the intricacies of what we will be putting out for bets, ones that we want to help you guys make money. For all you guys having tough times out there, this is an opportunity at a conservative level, obviously, to make some bets, make some cash, help yourself out, and uh, obviously help us out by liking, subscribing, and sharing this podcast. Check us out on all social channels. Cheers to you, Dale. I'm excited for next week. We're back in business, baby. We're, we're back in business, man. Cheers, buddy. <laughs>